Good morning, everyone. It is a pleasure to see all of you here today. For those of you online, welcome to you as well. We are returning back to our look at the life of David, and as we do so, trying to discern there what it is that is in David that the Lord would remark and describe him as a man after God's own heart, certainly a man who uh, had his failings, had his flaws, uh, but uh, there is something remarkable in the way that the Lord prepared him and worked in him, stirred him up to serve him in such a way that he certainly serves both in the Old and the New Testament as uh, a very clear forerunner of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, with that, I would ask if you would turn, please, to the book of 1 Samuel once again. 1 Samuel 23, I'm going to read verses 1 through 13. And if you're able, I would ask uh, you to stand, please, for the reading of God's holy word. 1 Samuel 23, verses 1 through 13. Now, they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Kaila and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of Yahweh, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And Yahweh said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Kaila. But David's men say to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of Yahweh again, and Yahweh answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Keilah, he had come down with an aphod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And some, Saul summoned all the people to war, to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. Then said David, O Yahweh, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Yahweh, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And Yahweh said, He will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. God adds his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Please be seated. So you may remember some weeks ago we looked at the atrocities that took place at Gibeah and at Nob where Saul 
had all the priests that were there at Nob slain and then sent Doeg and company to Nob where the inhabitants of Nob were slaughtered uh, because of Saul's revenge. And after those atrocities, which we looked at in some detail, you could you can imagine, can you not, that David and those that followed him needed some encouragement. They were, they, they, they just had to be, certainly we have a, an inkling of that with David, but all of them had to be just devastated by what Saul and Doeg had, had brought about. And I'm sure, actually, that not only David and his followers, but I expect that it left the rest of the nation reeling as well. We do see evidence in this passage here that it was not something that was done and in a corner it was all hushed up and nobody knew anything about it. News went far and wide of what Saul had done. And for this up-and-coming monarch, David, the need to know what to do next, I believe, weighed heavily upon his mind. He has retreated. He went, first of all, to the caves of Adullam, and then it was found that he was there, so he fled from there. And he went further inland to Judah, into the heart of Judah, kind of in the wilderness area there, and trying to sort out what to do. And in the midst of that, uh, a report, an alarming report comes. And now David finds himself with yet another decision to make. I'm sure his heart uh, is still heavy and just the thought of another task, another battle, something else to do that was not pleasant, that, that he doubtless felt um, reticent about, about going in some respects. Though you can see from David's comments here, he was a little more ready to go than his men. But nonetheless, David had to just feel this burden in an acute way. When you look at this little passage here, I don't know if you've ever read it before, I hope you have, but as we read, it, we read this thing, it, it just seems like it's sort of stuck in there, doesn't it? It's kind of like, well, let's just, let's just, the writer of 1 Samuel is just saying, well, let me just pick an incident and we'll just throw it in there. I mean, from from a human side of things, it almost feels that way, and yet it is not. It is not at all. In fact, this is a rather pivotal account in the larger narrative of David's progress as he flees from Saul and as the Lord is preparing him to take the, uh, to take the throne eventually. And the reason it's so pitiful, uh, pivotal is because it demonstrates very clearly who it is that Yahweh is upholding. Now, it, let me say a word here about, uh, about biblical interpretation and how you look at narratives and stories like this. 
And in the narrative books, sometimes we just have a, a rather uh, um, generic sort of approach to the way that we think about these books. We, I think perhaps maybe in our own culture, um, the study of history, unless we were very blessed to sit under a, a history teacher that actually knew what they were doing and brought it to life for us, many times we, we endure through history and classes and just look at it, okay, it's names, it's dates, yeah, I gotta know the timeline, okay, fine, let's just get this misery over with. But in these days particularly, and, and that could possibly be because of the way that many history books are written, which are scarcely better than sawdust in your mind as you, uh, as you read them. You, read, you get a hold of a good history book, and it's like, oh, yeah, it's compelling. You can't put it down. Well, that's all about the intent of the author. And you need to remember that just because these are historical narratives in Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, and they seem to be filled with all these names that we can't pronounce and these locations that we don't know where they are and, and, and all of that stuff, and, and we have this kind of dry, two-dimensional sort of approach to it. But these men wrote these books for a purpose. And I'm not even just, I'm not talking about the, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. There's a divine purpose behind them as well. But those holy men were moved by the Spirit of God to write in their day, in a context, for a reason. And when you look at the books of Samuel, and you look at the books of Kings, and you look at the books uh, of the Chronicles, in Samuel and the Chronicles especially, you can see evidence that the writer is writing to defend the Davidic kingdom, the Davidic line. That there's a reason why David is doing what he's doing. There's a reason why he is called to the monarchy by God's grace and God's appointment. And you can understand why if you put yourself just, I mean, looking at the last few texts we've had, how many times somebody's trying to undermine that monarchy. Somebody doesn't want David to be there. I, you know, sometimes I think we have this idea that, that except for Saul, everybody else was super happy about David being king. And nothing could be further from the truth. There, were, there needed to be a defense of the Davidic line. And we see that uh, in this passage, and we see it uh, throughout, uh, throughout the, Samuel, uh, the books of Samuel and then the books of the Chronicles, especially again. So this passage is written with that in mind. Why is this significant? And part of the, uh, the, uh, the reason is in the structure of the book, which I'll get to in a minute. But it does, again, demonstrate here who Yahweh really is upholding. Not Saul, but David. But there's also not just that uh, aspect of it. There's, a, there's, if you want to put it this way, a little more practical in terms of how we make application of what we see here. Uh, there's, some, there's a very practical lesson here as well that's lived out in the life of David and that we can glean 
uh, comfort from and joy from as well. And that is the fact that when Yahweh calls his servant to do something, he does not leave that servant wondering, at least not for long, what that task is and how to go about it. You ever been asked to do something, anything, that you weren't really sure quite how to do? Um, I have lots. <laughs> I know this is going to come a shock to you, but I don't know everything. Okay, so when I get asked to do things, sometimes I go, uh, I'm not really sure. Let me get back to you on that. I'll go find out. Uh, see what I can learn. YouTube, you know, or whatever. We have lots of things, uh, lots of resources for us to go. I don't go to YouTube for my sermons, by the way. I just want you to know that. Um, but uh, there are times, uh, truly, in our lives when we're asked to do things we don't really know how to do. And we need to know where to go to get those answers. And what we have here, uh, there's a process described here, very briefly, but it's inherent in, the, in uh, the structure of it and what is going on. This process is instructive not just for David, but for you and me as well. Because Yahweh does not leave his servants guessing. He instructs us on what we are to do. Now, the structure of this little passage is really enlightening. And as you, those of you who have uh, been here a while might suspect, um, I'd like to point out to you that this is a chiasm. Uh, that is, the structure uh, is bookended with parallel passages, and then you move in towards the middle, and you have two parallel passages, beginning and end, then you move in, you have two parallel passages, and in the middle is the point of the whole thing. And the point of the whole thing, structurally, is startling. Because you think this is all about David um, fighting Kaila and dodging Saul. But those are only the accidental, the um, occasional elements that are used to point up this truth that David is God's man and how God instructs him. So in verse 1, you have a report of the attack on Keilah. By the way, the, I'm indebted to uh, Dale Ralph Davis in his commentary, 1 Samuel, uh, for uh, pointing this out to me. I hadn't caught it in my initial studies. And uh, I saw this and I was like, ooh, ooh. I got excited, okay? So verse 1, report of the attack on Keilah. Verse 13, there's another report, report of David's escape. Verses 2 and 4, Yahweh gives guidance to David. 9 through 12, Yahweh gives guidance to David. Verse 5, David saves Keilah. Verses 7 and 8, Saul is set to attack Keilah. And right in the middle of that, you have this verse 6 that just says, in Abiathar, has the ephod. What's that? And it's a little confusing because uh, in our, as you perhaps noticed, in our English translation there it says, when Abiathar came to David at um, 
um, sorry, when he came to David, to Keilah, he'd come down with an ephod in his hand. But we know from the earlier passage that Abiathar had already come to David. He came to him in the cave of Adullam, and he had the ephod then as well. So a better translation here would be that David, that Abiathar came, when Abiathar came with David to Keilah, he, he had the, the ephod with him. But it's like, well, okay. Um, earlier in the passage, David's already been inquiring of the Lord. And then at the end of the passage, inquiring of the Lord, why is the ephod statement in the middle? Why wouldn't it be at the beginning? Because the ephod is something that, which we're going to talk about in a bit, was what was used for guidance, seeking out the, uh, Yahweh and what he would have him to do. But the fact that that is right smack in the middle tells you that this is all about God communicating with God's man and that God will defend God's man as he seeks what to do. That's, that's what tells you what the point of this passage is and helps to guide us then into thinking uh, then furthermore uh, about this guidance and the nature of it. And it is interesting, there, there's, two thing, there's obviously two things going on. In the, in the opening, it's about defending a city and in the end, it's about defending his men and figuring out how to you know, get out of harm's way. So we're going to... Look at this pathway that David is on. And it's, there's, there's, a, there's a twofold aspect to this pathway. And the first is in the first half of this passage, verses 1 through 5. And this particularly, this is all, David is seeking to, to minister to his people. So this is about God, uh, about God Yahweh, to, uh, guiding his servants into ministry. Into ministry. Several things that are going on here. Verse 2, as David hears this report, um, he goes immediately to Yahweh and says, all right, I've been given this information, what do I do with it? Should I go down and attack these Philistines? Now, David is doing here exactly what Saul should have been doing as the king. He should have been fighting the Philistines, the enemies of Israel in general, should be defending his people. But Saul was too busy trying to protect his position in the world. David is showing himself. Again, there's a reason for pointing out this incident. David is showing himself to be the true king. He's, he's the one who's acting like a king here, not the one who's actually wearing the crown at the moment. And it's interesting here that David has clearly learned a lesson from former mistakes. As we've looked at David's life in the past, we noticed there were times when he was prepared to stretch the truth. He was prepared to go jump into, from, you know, from, uh, uh, jump out, from the, out, of the, out of the pot into the fire when he went to Gath. Uh, to, to find refuge among the Philistines is he's just kind of barreling along and making snap decisions about things that weren't always the wisest things, thing to do. But here, David stops and says, Lord, what do you want me to do? As the Lord guides him, 
the Lord is guiding him to do and tells him to do uh, what is necessary to fulfill David's calling, his commission as the king. When the Lord guides you, he, he is not just trying to uh, help you keeping from, you know, to keep from stubbing your toes in life. As we listen to what he has to say through his word, we find there encouragements to minister in the lives of others, to serve others, to strive to defend others. So the Lord is calling David to fulfill that commission. But it's interesting that this calling into ministry, calling into fulfilling his commission, that's wonderful, isn't it? That's a great thing. The Lord is leading us to do ministry. He calls us to, whether it's in our families, whether it's in the church, whether it's in our workplace, when he guides us along into a place where we can minister and serve others, there's risk involved. Sometimes that we, I, I think we're surprised by that somehow. I'm wondering, oh Lord, didn't you know <laughs> what was going to happen here? You see that you see this brought out with David's men. I mean, David, David's men are like, okay, that's great. Let's go be the heroes and save Kaila. <clears throat> but uh, let me point out to you that this is a, a, a walled town. And that sounds great, doesn't it? We're going to go and defend this walled town. The problem with a walled town is that access and exit is limited. It's subject to being besieged. David's men understood that there was a tactical disadvantage to being stuck into the, in this town. They fully expected uh, that uh, uh, Saul would be coming in full force and they would not be able to withstand a siege. I, I think it's really interesting that David's men, and I think David is himself as well, there's about 600 of them, right? So they're not worried about the Philistines. They're kind of like, yeah, okay, great, we can go mop up that little problem, but... We're going to be stuck here. We're going to get wiped out by Saul. And David did recognize the issue. So he hears these objections. He goes to Yahweh again, asks again. And he got the same answer. And then what you see there is David said, okay. And his men said, okay. They just go. And they go and they take care of the Philistine problem, which is a was a relatively easy thing. In fact, there's no details given. There's no, there's no, they chase them down and rend, you know, anything like that kind of stuff. Like y'all see in other battle narratives sometimes. This is just, all right, they went and they saved him. Took care of him. But ministry that fulfills the commission that the Lord has for you, again, whether, you know, as, as a parent, as an officer in the church, as a uh, just a person who is a believer in the Lord who stands in whatever circumstances you stand in, give testimony to who he is. There is a safety element. 
safety of your reputation, safety of your health, safety of of your finances, safety of your peace of mind. I saw a meme on Facebook the other day with the there's an older lady sitting in a rocking chair with her puppy at her feet and a cup of coffee and and it was like, you know, as I get older, I just want to not pay attention to what's going on in the world around me. I just want to have my coffee and rocking chair and just go, you know, peacefully to the end of my days. And I'm like, oh, wouldn't that be nice? But unless you just plan to check out from the world, that isn't going to happen. I uh, have seen more than once uh, during my time of ministry men who labored faithfully for the gospel of Jesus Christ, fighting the good fight, watching them as they get older, just getting tired of the fight. And it's at that time that they are the most vulnerable. Because when you're fighting, you got your shield up, you got your weapons up, you're ready to go. But when you get tired and you decide that it's time to stop fighting, that's when you lay your shield down. And that's when compromises happen. And that's when ministries often get ruined. That some, some guy labored for, you know, a generation to build. And he ends up pulling it down around him because he got tired of the fight. David here is young. But you can, you can imagine, he's probably already tired of this. Tired of the running, tired of all of that. And yet, he goes out, puts his men and himself in harm's way to defend those that need defending. And he's victorious. This is a ministry that, in spite of the risk, it delivers others. It was worth the risk. The enemies of God's, uh, of God's people were dealt a heavy blow here. I think, I think it's interesting that uh, uh, you could maybe subtitle uh, this, uh, the, the, the defense of, of Keilah as um, an ancient food fight. Because it's all about food. Keilah's coming and they're, I mean the Philistines are coming and they're robbing the threshing floors. They, they're going in there trying to clean, clean out the inhabitants of Keilah uh, kind of uh, to prevent, I guess, or, or just to add to their own, their own uh, harvest or whatever. Who knows? Maybe the harvest was bad in Philistia that year and they're going out and trying to get whatever they could get. We're not told those details, but it's about food. And then when David attacks the Philistines... Um, these are this is a, a, a war party, so they've got their food and they've got their livestock and their animals and all of that. What do they do? It specifically mentions that they they trounce the Philistines and they take all their animals. That's about food. So David's providing not only for Keilah, providing for his own men. So it's a food fight.
But if you take a step back from that little detail, it really has to do with sustaining life, doesn't it? You wipe out the threshing floors, you wipe out the winter's stores of what they're going to eat. Take away the livestock, you're going to materially damage uh, folks' ability to feed themselves. So it's about sustaining life. And it's interesting, you now David has more mouths to feed. Last time we saw him in the cave of Adullam, he had 400. Now he's got six. The Lord brings willing hands to the fight to defend his people, but they need to eat. But this ministry that David was engaged in, a ministry as a king, was about sustaining life. It's about delivering others. And Yahweh guided him very clearly into that ministry. And that's a blessing. The Lord guides us into similar kinds of blessings, uh, blessed ministries with our families and the church, whether it's through the, the open ministry of the word like this or in the privacy of one-on-one -on -one communication as we uh, go to God's word and see how we're, how we're to live and how we're to survive, how we're to be sustained by the Lord. Um, and yes, it's risky, and yes, it can be painful, and yes, it can be full of sorrow and weariness, and yet we find it to be a joyful thing when we see the Lord's hand uh, enable us to carry out the things that he calls us to do. And success is, is wonderful in the Lord's service, isn't it? But dear ones, do not get too comfortable. Though we may not like to think of this inconvenient truth, the fact is that Yahweh often takes us down a very frightening path. Now, he guides us by his loving staff, of course. We read that uh, in Psalm 54. Or, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and sang it as well. But along the way, as you go through this difficult, dangerous, frightening path that seems uncertain, you will come to learn that this is, this is just as great an evidence of the providence of God as those victories are, as, as, the, as the, the positive ministry is. His providence is just as great in times of danger as it is in times of victory. And in those times of danger, you learn to trust him all the more. So the other aspect of this pathway is that he guides us through that danger and out of it. The dangers come from fearful adversaries Perhaps you noticed as I read, this, I read along the prominence of reporting. There's a whole lot of reporting going on in this. <laughs> There's at least four times where it's specifically uh, mentioned and a couple other times that uh, it's intimated. Um, there's lots of people telling other people lots of things. And each time 
a, a report is given, a new wrinkle in this story materializes. Reports, things we hear, can be very frightening. It can be alarming. And sometimes even for real reasons. I mean, sometimes they're idle reports and they can frighten us and we don't need to be. But often there's good reason to be concerned. Adversaries are on every side. The Philistines were to the west. Saul was to the east. In this particular case, this group of Philistines appear to be just mere raiders. We're not told how many they were. Uh, but uh, uh, David and his 600 men were not concerned about them at all. So it just seems that it was, it was a smaller group. Though the, the whole Philistine nation is off to the west there and could certainly be called upon. They were particularly... Uh, just focused on this smaller group. But Saul is to the east. And Saul has summoned, as it says there, has summoned to war all the people to besiege David and his men. Now Saul knows a thing or two about tactics. As, a, as a poor of a king as he was, he, did, he, was, a, he was a good fighting man. And, the, and David's men knew that. The prospects for them were grim. If, if Saul's bringing the hundreds of thousands of the uh, fighters of, of Israel to come against them. But David has his own intel. He's got both earthly intel, because people are coming and telling him stuff, uh, but also divine intel. We'll, again, talk about that That. Uh, process here in a few moments. But it's intel that enables him to once again know what to do. Saul is delusional, again, still, thinking that Yahweh is fighting for him. Verse 7, oh, God's given him into my hand. In fact, he even uses, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Um, now, he just says Elohim. He focuses on God's uh, title as the Almighty One. God's given him into my hand. God's given him into my hand. He just thinks that uh, the Lord is on his side. Uh, but actually, it's David who's the anointed king to whom the Lord speaks. The fearful adversaries in this story are either defeated or they just go away. Verse 13. And the Lord is the one who does the guiding in that as he helps David know what to do. Perhaps more hurtful than these adversaries is the fact that the Lord also guides David. You notice all these sets of questions back and forth. The second question was, would the men of Keilah surrender David and his men? Now, what would you think that they should do? I mean, David has just, and his and men, have just delivered them. Wonderful victory. <laughs> Enabled them not only to have the benefit of, of all their grain on their threshing floors, not be robbed, but now they, they, even, they even come out of it ahead because they've got all the animals of the Philistines too to add to their coffers. Are they grateful? I'm sure they were. Were they going to give up David? Absolutely. And you look at that and you think, what is wrong with these guys? But here is the connection with, uh, 
the prior passage. What has just what has happened right before this? The entire town of Nob got wiped out by Saul and his armies. And the the men of Keilah, the rulers of Keilah, were like, we don't want that to happen here. We don't want our wives and children killed. We don't want us killed. We don't want to lose everything. They had heard all about Nob. So their fear is understandable. And yet, think about this from David's standpoint and those who risked their lives to deliver Keilah. It really had to sting. It really had to hurt that these people that you sacrificed for and were, and were successful in delivering them kick you in the teeth, throw you under the bus, use whatever... Uh, cliche you want. But they didn't stand by them. That's a danger. David would often would often uh, bemoan the fact that his faithful friends, his ones that he worshipped with, ones that they did things with, turned their backs on him and indeed betrayed him. And here uh, he has a hard lesson in that. The lesson here is never expect that just because you help somebody in a time of difficulty, never expect that they will stand by you. Not in an unfailing way. Only Yahweh is unfailing. David is beginning to learn that in spades. I'm sure the men of Keilah were, were, were nice guys in their own right. They were trying to do what was right by their town. And David, after all, was just, he was there, he would come and go. They had to live with the people they looked at every day. But that's part of this pathway, this wonderful ministry that the Lord guides us into. Sometimes these are some of the risks the dangers that are there, but he guides us in the midst of those as well. Yahweh's directions to David are very clear in this passage. But let's come now to the process, though, in verse 6, in the heart of all this. I'll move through this rather quickly, but I think the point is, is, is clear here. Let's talk about the ephod, though, first of all. Uh, the ephod was a priestly garment. It was worn under the breastplate. It was fastened at the shoulders. It had some tabs up there. It was fastened at the shoulders. It had two stones. And on those stones were engraved the names of the tribes of Israel. So that when the priest wore the ephod underneath the breastplate of righteousness, which had all those stones all on it, uh, <coughs> it was symbolically bringing the names, bringing the tribes into the Lord's presence for remembrance, we read of that in Exodus uh, chapter 24, where it's described. And the ephod was used with these things called the urim and the thummim, literally lights and perfection, or if you want to take it in a little more theological frame, revelation and truth. 
and the Urim and the Thummim were used with the ephod in some manner, never described. And even the, the rabbinic writings disagree on what was done. Nobody knows what they did and how they used it. But they were used in some manner for seeking the Lord's will. And the Urim and the Thummim are really mysterious. We're not, there's no description of what they actually are. Um, you get the idea that they're kind of, maybe they're stones upon which are engraved things. Um, kind of like the, anybody ever have that old toy, the magic eight ball? When you were a kid, it really dates me. How old is that thing? Uh, where you'd roll it down and, and it would just, inside in the liquid, you know, some answer would come up. That's sort of the ancient Israelite version of, of that, kind of. Um, perhaps some kind of dice, maybe, probably some kind of engraved stone, I would guess. They were cast, which lends me to believe that that's probably what they were. They were thrown down. And however they landed would tell you something. There's no sure answer. There's no explanation in the scriptures of their origin. There's no explanation in the scriptures of their rationale or actually how or they, how they were actually used. It's just assumed that you, the reader knows and, that, and it says that they were used. In fact, uh, they were first mentioned in Exodus 28. It, it's clear in Exodus 28 that they are mentioned as something that is already known. Unlike some of the other descriptions there in Exodus, which kind of describe things new and how they're made and, and why and all that. They're just mentioned. It's one of those mysteries. I have no idea what, what that's all about. And they were apparently kept in a pocket of some kind of pouch or something. It's not described, but they're, they're, they go with the ephod and the breastplate. All of that's unclear. What they were used, though, all the way up to the Babylonian captivity by the priests, to seek out God's will. And at the time of the Babylonian captivity, they were lost and were never used again. Which kind of um, makes you understand why the, the years between the captivity and the coming of Christ were known as the silent years, where there were no actual prophets, where people were desperate to hear, where people went all, to all different kind of lengths to write different books, supposedly written by the prophets so they could tell everybody what Yahweh was saying when Yahweh wasn't talking. But the point in our passage here is that David was in possession of these things through the quick thinking of Abiathar and through the foolishness of Saul and Doeg. Because in their rage and their atrocities, what did they do? They, if they did, well, if Saul had been thinking clearly, he would have said, you know what, I'm going to hang on to those things. But Abiathar fled from Saul. Saul essentially drove the means of determining God's will right into David's hands, along with a lawful priest to do the asking. Again, the fact that this is right in the middle of this tells us that in the author's mind, he's trying to point out that Yahweh was unmistakably with David. But beloved, a greater than David is here. And I would say a better means for discerning the Lord's will. 
Our God is no longer silent. He speaks through His servant, through the completed canon of Scripture, perceived by minds who are enlightened by the Holy Spirit, promised by our great high priest. We have a high priest who is settled in the heavens, who intercedes for us. We have a great high priest who reveals the the will of God to us through his word. As the writer of Hebrews chapter 4, the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 4, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The writer of Hebrews is doubtless uh, aware of what Jesus said uh, as recorded in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, where he said, I, he tells his disciples, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Our Lord Jesus Christ brings to full view what is suggested here by Abiathar having the aphod, this kind of odd little detail stuck in the middle there. The one who the one who is our prophet, our priest, and our king, who has access to our, our God, uh, who can reveal what God's will is for us, who uh, defends his people perfectly and marvelously. He is greater than David. He is the one through whom the Lord guides us. His a because Christ is our anointed high priest. And he reveals and guides us by the Spirit of God. He reveals what the Lord would have us to do. I think sometimes, of course, we don't know what the Lord would have us to do because, well, the noise of the world is crowding out our ability to listen very well. Or we forget sometimes uh, that uh, uh, our own intelligence network is not sufficient. David clearly had an intelligence network. People were telling him all kinds of stuff. But when it came time, what should I do with Kaila? What should I do about Saul? What should I do? He didn't trust his intelligence network. He trusted what the Lord had to say in his word. And you and I can also trust Yahweh to guide us at every step of the way, as we looked at uh, last time in Psalm 107, to guide us to our desired haven. In all the victories and in all the challenges of the ministries, ministries that the Lord calls us to, you have a sure guide, the Holy Spirit. He enlightens your minds to understand the word and will of your great high priest, the only mediator between God and man.
May Yahweh grant you grace to humbly and obediently walk in his way, hiding in the perfect intercession and revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, that you do not leave us guessing. We don't have to wonder who our Savior is. We don't have to wonder if our deliverance is sure. We don't have to wonder even what the end goal is. You reveal all these things to us in your word. Help us to walk by faith and not by sight. Help us not to trust to our own intel. Help us to trust in our great high priest who loved us and gave himself for us and now lives and reigns seated at your right hand, interceding on our behalf. We thank you, Father, that you do not leave us to our own devices, that you've made a way to clearly reveal to us that we must seek you and obey you, regardless of whatever consequences might come or how tortuous the pathway may seem. Lord, let us rest in you, we pray. In Jesus' name.